All right, it's chapter 21, as I mentioned, and the subject, or the title is Of Christian Liberty and Liberty of Conscience. And that's pretty much the way that the chapter proceeds. So we'll start out with paragraph one. Paragraph one is actually broken into two parts. It's two separate paragraphs that form what we call paragraph one here. And so I'll call them paragraph 1A and paragraph 1B. But the, both of them together, call, if you call that paragraph 1, the subject is believers, liberty in Christ. And it's not the believers in liberty in Christ in the singular, but it's plural. So let's begin there with point A, the substance of Christian liberty, paragraph 1A. And here's how that first subparagraph reads. The liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the rigor and curse of the law, and in their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan, and dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, the fear and sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation, as also in their free access to God and their yielding obedience unto him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing mind. So let's consider, first of all, the direct subjects of this chapter. It says at the beginning that it's speaking about the liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel. So first of all, in terms of the direct subject, the direct subject is the liberty purchased by Christ. The liberty which Christ hath purchased is the wording of our confession. In John 8, verse 36, we're told that there, therefore, if the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. The Son, of course, is the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. If he makes you free, you will be free indeed. Well, that's the freedom that this chapter is speaking about, the liberty that Christ hath purchased. This is the foundation of the doctrine of Christian liberty. Freedom is not simply granted to us by God. It is granted to us. But it makes the point here that that liberty was purchased and the payment was the death of God's Son. So this was bought at a price. We ought to treasure our Christian liberty. Christ has purchased the freedom that we enjoy in Him. And so it is rightly called Christian liberty And it's distinguished from any other liberty. We talk about um, in this country that we have uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and we have the right to that. Well, this is different from that. That's saying that those are God-given things for people uh, just because they're the creation of God and made in God's image. But here we're talking about Christian liberty, what Christ has purchased for his people. And that leads to the next subpoint here. We're looking still at the direct subjects of this chapter. First of all, it's the liberty purchased by Christ, Christian liberty. Secondly, 
It's the liberty of believers under the gospel. You see how it states that. It's talking about the liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel. That is, those who believe in Christ in this present era, the new covenant age. Now, in the paragraph 1b, they'll make a statement about the liberty that people had under the old covenant. But here they're focusing on the liberty that we enjoy in Christ under the new covenant. So it's the liberty of believers under the gospel. Then point two is the definition of Christian liberty, and that's uh, what this this paragraph is mainly about, paragraph 1a, the definition of Christian liberty. And they begin by defining it from a negative standpoint and defined negatively. They break it down into uh, two subsections here, the, the negative part of the definition. It tells us the things that we are freed from in Christ. And they use the language, first of all, their freedom from, and it starts the guilt of sin and lists a number of other things. And then it says um, about in the middle of the paragraph there, and in their being delivered from this present evil world and a number of other things. And as I tried to think through, did they were they purposely... Um, um, trying to break that into two categories, or were they just trying to um, uh, help us catch our breath and remind us of what this lengthy list is from and then just change the wording? I'm not sure about that. I have a uh, speculation in my mind, but I'll just press on here and, and note that they use those two things. So define negatively, our Christian liberty consists in freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the rigor and curse of the law. So notice, first of all, the guilt of sin. In Christ, because of his purchase of liberty for us as Christians through his own death, we are freed from the guilt of sin. And the way I'm going to deal with all this, these, uh, this lengthy list of things and with much of the rest of what's in the confession on this, in this chapter is to simply give proof texts and read those texts, not take the time for us all to turn there because I could simply print them out on my notes. That's what I've done. So the guilt of sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 states it this way, For he made him, that is God the Father, made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Our sin and guilt of our sin was placed upon Christ. He was punished in our place, and we are freed from the guilt of sin. Psalm 103, verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. So there we have the guilt of sin that we're free from. Secondly, we're freed from the condemning wrath of God. Romans 8.1 states, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We come into this world as sinners, and righteously we are under the condemning wrath of God. But in Christ that is removed from us, and once we believe in him... 
The Bible statement here is true. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The cloud of the wrath of God that hangs over the head of everyone as he comes into this world and is there till he repents of his sin and trusts in Christ for believers is gone. And then thirdly, we're freed from the rigor and the curse of of the law. The rigor is the hardship of it. And we're freed from that and we're freed from the curse of the law. Galatians 3 verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. So the law's uh, loud thunder is something that the Christian, if he's thinking correctly, no longer hears because it doesn't condemn him anymore. There's no condemnation for him. He is freed from the curse of the law. So we're freed, there stay state at the beginning, from these three things. And we need to remember, uh, based on the statement at the beginning, that Christ has purchased this. This freedom is all because of Christ. And then next... Still under the same heading, they changed the language, so I just put a second uh, subheading under defined negatively. We are freed, our our um, liberty in Christ consists in freedom from those things and then deliverance from the following. And in their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan and dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, the fear and sting of death, the grave of the victory, excuse me, the the victory of the grave and everlasting damnation. So first of all, we're delivered from this present evil world. You may recognize the uh, language there coming from Galatians 1 verse 4. It speaks of Christ who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. We're delivered from this present evil age in various ways. Uh, We're no longer considered part of it in the sight of God. We're not with the rest of the world under the condemning wrath of God anymore. We're delivered from this age. They're no longer our people. God's people are our people. Their gods are not our gods. God is our God, and we are delivered from um, the mindset of this age. We are transformed, rather, by the renewing of our minds. We're freed from this present evil world, delivered from it. And then second, we're delivered from bondage to Satan. Everyone comes into this world in bondage to the evil one. As Jesus said, He spoke to the Jews in John 8 and told them that their father was not God, but spiritually speaking, their father was the devil. And we're delivered from our sonship to the devil, we could say, and our bondage to the devil. He was our taskmaster, a cruel taskmaster. And God breaks those bonds, as it says in Colossians 1.13. God has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. And then third, we're delivered from the dominion of sin. Romans 6.14 says... For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. The first point they made was that we were freed 
from the guilt of sin, and that's true, but this is a different point. Freed from the dominion of sin, we're not only freed from the condemning power of sin, but we're freed, and this is their point here, from the reigning power of sin, reigning in our lives. That's the point in Romans six fourteen. Paul comes, as he comes into chapter 6, there's a change from speaking about the power of sin to condemn us, that was the first five chapters, now from the power of sin to rule over us practically in our day-to-day lives. If you're a true Christian, here's part of your liberty, that sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law but under grace. And they're properly defining this as part of the liberty that we have in Christ. Liberty from the power of sin. And then next, from the evil of afflictions. And notice how they state that. They don't say that Christians are delivered from afflictions. There are many people in our day and age who want to say that if you're living the Christian life correctly... If you're really exercising faith in Jesus on a day-to-day basis, then you won't have afflictions. You won't share the common lot of this world. And if you are, you're probably not believing. You're not believing at least the way you should. It's a a faith problem. But they're, they're, they're stating here that we're not delivered from afflictions. We're delivered from the evil of afflictions. Psalm 34, 19 says that many are the afflictions of the righteous. So Christians are never promised that they're delivered from afflictions. But what we are promised is something like what it says in Romans 8.28, that if we're Christians, because we're delivered from the evil of afflictions, that doesn't mean the pain or the discomfort or the inconvenience of them, but we're delivered from the evil of them. And it says in Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Everything that happens to me, negative though it may be, though we may legitimately call it harmful or evil in some way or other, maybe it's a physical evil like coronavirus, Yet we as Christians are freed from the ultimate evil of afflictions. They won't ultimately do us harm. They'll work together for our good, and they'll serve to bring glory to God. Our 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9 is another text. God said to Paul there, remember when he had been enduring that affliction and pleading with God that he would take it from him? God said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. So he has an affliction. He's in pain. He has sorrow about it. He's pleading to God to take it away. God says, I'm giving you grace to deal with it, to bear up under it. And such grace that it makes my strength perfect, or your experience of it, in your weakness. So Paul said then, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So another blessing and part of the freedom that a Christian enjoys all because of Christ. And then the next, in fact, I'll treat the next two together. 
One is we're delivered from the fear and sting of death. The second one is closely related. We're, de- we're delivered from the victory of the grave. Death does not have the last word, and we shouldn't be fearful of death as Christians, and the sting of death is gone for us. And all those things are summarized in this passage, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 to 57. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal, that means myself in my mortal life, this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. For the Christian, death does not have the final victory. For the unbeliever, death does, because they suffer death forever. Eternal separation from Christ and God in torment in hell or in the lake of fire, but not for Christians. We're freed from the fear and sting of death. We're freed from the victory of the grave. And then finally, we are, fear of, we are freed from everlasting damnation. We're told in 1 Thessalonians 1.10 about Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. So we're delivered from all of these things, and it's all because of Christ. <clears throat> and then we come to the next part of the paragraph here where our liberty in Christ is defined positively. In other words, not just in terms of the things that we are freed from, but in terms of the things that we are freed to. We're freed unto these things. It says, as also in their free access to God, so Christian liberty consists in their free access to God and their yielding obedience unto him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing mind. So they break it down really into two things. It's free access to God, and I call it free obedience. So free access and free obedience. First part is, as also in their free access to God. And that simply means we can go to Him, and we can pray to Him, and He will receive us. Hebrews 4, verse 16, we are to come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We'll come to another text in Hebrews in chapter 10 under another heading here. But this is the first point they mentioned this. We have this free access to God in Christ. John Owen wrote this about this free access that we have to God. He said, This is the great fundamental privilege of the gospel, that believers in all their holy worship have liberty, boldness, and confidence to enter with it and by it into the gracious presence of God. By this privilege, we are able to come into the gracious presence of God. We have immediate access, we could say, to the throne room of God in heaven. And this leads into the next point as well, the free obedience. 
and they're yielding obedience unto him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing mind. Someone who does not have freedom in Christ because he hasn't repented of his sins, hasn't trusted in Christ. There are many people in the world like this, we could say, who are trying to earn their salvation. And they think that by their obedience, they're going to be saved. Well, that's obeying out of slavish fear. If I don't obey, I'm going to be cast into hell. I have to earn my deliverance from hell by my own obedience. Well, that's getting things backwards as far as Christianity is concerned because it's Christ who obeys in the believer's place. And when someone repents and believes in Christ, he's freed from those shackles of obedience out of slavish fear. Slaves with harsh masters obey, but they obey solely out of fear. God's slaves, they're saying, because of this Christian liberty, obey not out of slavish fear, but out of a childlike love. They love their God and Father and a willing mind. They want to do what they do in obedience to Jesus Christ. The text is Romans eight fourteen and 15. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. We obey God because he's our loving Father, and we obey him in a spirit of childlike love and willingness. That's the point. Now, the Bible does teach that as Christians, we are slaves or servants of God. In fact, Paul in this very epistle of Romans 8 begins with the language, Paul, a bondservant or a slave of Jesus Christ. So that's the, the, the point is that we, we're, we are slaves in one sense, but we're slaves to a loving Father whom we also love. And that's what is the point when it says we haven't received as Christians the spirit of bondage again to fear. It's not a slave-master relationship like you had with the uh, Hebrews in Egypt and Pharaoh. And it's not like the slavery that an unbeliever has toward the devil. The devil is a harsh taskmaster. Sin is a harsh taskmaster. God is not. And the fact that we can have free access to God and can obey him with this kind of freedom is part of the purchase of Christ. It's part of this um, topic of Christian liberty. So there's the first subparagraph, paragraph 1a. Secondly, we have what I'm calling the enlargement of Christian liberty, paragraph 1b, and I'll read that paragraph. All which, in other words, everything that was in that first paragraph, all of these things were common also to believers under the law. That means in the Old Covenant, for the substance of them. But under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged in their freedom from the yoke of a ceremonial law to which the Jewish church was subjected, and 
in greater boldness of access to the throne of grace and in fuller communications of the free spirit of God than believers under the law did ordinarily partake. So there's the enlargement of Christian liberty. Um, The liberties, in other words, of paragraph 1a that we just took the time to go over, they're saying all those things, notice how they start their paragraph, all which, all those things, were common to believers in the Old Covenant. And notice how they state it, for the substance of them. In other words, they're different in degree in the New Covenant, different in the abundance of those blessings that we enjoy now in the, under the gospel, difference, different in the fullness of them, but not different in the substance of them. And they explain this with three statements. First, but under the new... Well, I'm, I'm going to explain it with three statements. I'm going to summarize what they have here with three statements. And the first one is this. Old Covenant believers knew the same liberties we know in Christ. That's what I just was stating. All which were common also to believers under the law for the substance of them. A true believer in the Old Covenant had all the same blessings that were laid out there in paragraph 1a. They're freed from um, the guilt and the power of sin. They were freed from the devil. They were freed from the fear of death and from hell. Believers in the Old Covenant had all those freedoms. Let's listen to David's words here in Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So David was writing under the old covenant. David was writing about his own experience. I, and my understanding of Psalm 32 is that it talks about his experience of God's dealings with him when he was living a life of unconfessed sin, even as a believer, for quite a period of time. He had sinned by committing adultery with Bathsheba and then committing the sin of murder by having Bathsheba's husband Uriah killed. And David was living under the guilt of of unconfessed sin. But then he confessed his sin and he says how blessed a thing it is to have those sins forgiven, to have those sins covered, to have God not impute the iniquity of those sins to myself. He said "What what a blessing that is. God forgave me. Well, he's writing under the Old Covenant, and he has all the same blessings regarding the forgiveness of sins that we have in the New Covenant. His blessings were all because of Christ as well, as are ours. So he knew those blessings, and then he goes on in Psalm 32, in verse 6, For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found, Surely in a flood of great waters they shall not come near him. So here I think we make a shift 
as, and, and we do make a shift because I cho- chose this proof text to make this point, and that is that it's the, the, the point of the free access we have to God. David has the freedom from sin. There's the negative aspect of liberty enjoyed by by believers under the old covenant. Here's the positive aspect of it. David, David says, wicked though I was, and long as I lay in unrepentance, God has not only forgiven my sin, he's given me this free access to him. I'm telling you all that you should confess your sins and go to God. He'll receive you. And and I'll go on with a couple other quotes from Psalm. Psalm 63, verses 1 and 8, where we see this free access to God that David enjoyed under the Old Covenant. O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. My soul follows close behind you, your right hand upholds me. I like the language of the ASV there for the first part of verse 8. My soul follows hard after you. Well, this is the the life of a man under the old covenant, under the law of Moses. They had that access to God. And likewise, Psalm 131 verse 2, David says, Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. My life may be difficult. I may have great trials and pressures. But by the mercy of God, David says, I can be just like a weaned child sitting in his mother's lap. And that was the experience of, the experience of David under the Old Covenant. So, first statement is, Old Covenant believers knew the same liberties we know in Christ. Second statement is this, but they did not know the same measure of liberty. They did not know the same degree, the same abundance, if you will. The statement of the confession is this, but under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged. In other words, they had great liberties under the Old Covenant. But compared to us, ours, their liberties were not so great. Ours have been enlarged, and it's, it's legitimate to say greatly enlarged even. So that's the second point. They did not know the same measure of liberty, and I've already made that point, and that leads to the third statement. The increased liberty under the new covenant includes these certain things. And they give us um, A, B, C, three things here. First, the freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law to which the Jewish church was subjected. So under the new covenant, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged, first, in the freedom from the yoke of a ceremonial law to which the Jewish church was subjected. When we studied chapter 19... We heard about the ceremonial law. It was all the laws for the Jews that God gave them regarding how they should worship him. They needed to have sacrifices. They needed to have a priesthood and Levites. They needed a a temple or a tabernacle before there was a temple. And there was one special place where God was to be worshipped. They had to offer these bloody animal sacrifices in a certain way. And on and on and on and on. 
And here in the confession, it calls that a yoke, and it calls it a yoke because the Bible calls it a yoke. And it's a yoke that we in the New Covenant age are freed from. And that is increased liberty compared to the Old Covenant. Listen to how uh, Peter expressed it in Acts chapter 15 and verse 10. It's where they were discussing uh, in Jerusalem whether Gentile believers, Gentile converts to Christ, had to be circumcised. And he says, Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. In other words, Peter there, who lived his whole life up to that point under that yoke of the old covenant, said that's what it was. It was a yoke. And it was difficult to bear. We couldn't bear it. And we shouldn't be putting it on Christians. Why? Because Peter was coming to understand in a greater way at that time the freedom that we have in Christ in the new covenant. And that's how he expressed it. Back in chapter 19, there was this statement about the ceremonial laws. It said these ceremonial laws were only temporary and are by Jesus Christ, the true Messiah and only lawgiver, abrogated and taken away. So you don't have that yoke on your neck as a new covenant believer. And you should resist any temptation you ever find yourself succumbing to if you come across people who are, um, some people will call themselves messianic Jews. In other words, Jews who have come to believe in the Messiah and they're still too Jewish in their practices. And they want to revive and reinstitute and observe some of these old covenant ways of worship remember that you've been freed from that and it would be a step backwards. That's what Scripture teaches when it says we don't have that yoke anymore that neither the apostles as Jews nor their fathers could bear and God doesn't call you to bear it. And then another thing that we're freed from and makes us different from old covenant believers is greater boldness of access to the throne of grace. And now let's go to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, we'll start at verse 19. It's not saying that they didn't have access to the throne of grace there in the Old Covenant. They did. But we have greater boldness of access to the throne of grace. Hebrews 10, beginning at verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiness, the holiest, By the blood of Jesus, that means the holy of holies, the innermost part of the temple, which for us is in heaven, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with water. In other words, we understand that in the New Covenant, we have even greater access. Yes, those Old Covenant saints did have access to God. They had freedom of entry into His throne room, in a sense. But the point here is that now... Whereas we could say the doors were open to them in the Old Covenant, now the doors are thrown open 
And we have an understanding of why they're so open and how it is that they're so open. It's because of what Christ has done for us. And we have a full understanding of how our sins are taken away and how we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And when we come to God, we come to God clothed in that way so that he receives us as his son. That is what they are calling greater boldness of access to the throne of grace. That's what you have as your right and privilege as a Christian. And if you say, well, I don't feel it. And when I read the the Psalms of David, I don't feel like I have the access he had. Well, you should concentrate on that. And you should search the scriptures to see what it teaches about this. And you should ask God, why don't I feel that? And plead with God that you would sense that boldness, that you would have that boldness, and you would realize the greater access you have under the new covenant than even David, who wrote those wonderful psalms that we should use in our devotional life, and you should plead with God that he would give you a greater and greater sense of this freedom that you have in Christ. And then third, our freedom consists... Uh, in, in comparison to the Old Covenant saints, in fuller communications of the free Spirit of God than believers under the law did ordinarily partake of. Let's look at John 7, verses 37 to 39. John 7, verses 37 to 39. Here we have Jesus in Jerusalem. And we're told here that uh, this is during the feast. I think it was the Feast of Tabernacles. And it says, On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, what is that river all about? Well, it says in verse 39, John tells us, But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Well, many people take that to mean that the Spirit of God was never given to God's people in the Old Covenant. Seems like pretty absolute language there. The Spirit was not yet given, or literally in the Greek, it was not yet, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Well, we know that the Spirit was yet, because he's one of the persons of the Trinity. He always existed. He always exists. He always is. So it doesn't mean that. And it certainly doesn't mean that no believers in Christ ever had him. How could believers understand God and the gospel even under the old covenant? How could they they believe in God without the help of the Holy Spirit? How could they have renewed hearts and be believers and have uh, that kind of access to God that David had and all old covenant believers had? They couldn't. So believers did have the Holy Spirit, but you see the point they're making here. We have fuller communications of the Spirit of God. Many of you have you heard, many of you have heard Pastor Martin pray many times, Lord, give us copious measures of your Spirit. 
Well, we ask for that because that is our general lot here in the New Covenant, to have copious measures of the Spirit compared to the Old Covenant believers. That's the point they're making. And we're asking even for greater measures and greater um, power from God through that Spirit. And here the point they're making is this. We have, as a regular experience of our life, in our life as Christians, greater and fuller communications of the free Spirit of God than believers under the law did ordinarily partake of. And you might say, well, what about some of those ways that people in the Old Covenant were um, helped by the Spirit of God to do things that we have never done and probably never will do, like Samson. We're told in Judges that the Spirit of God came upon him and he performed these marvelous physical feats. Or we've been reading through the book of, of um, Exodus in our Old Covenant reading in the evening services, and we're told about this man, Bezalel. And it said the Spirit of God helped him to produce the Old Testament tabernacle in exactly the way that God had laid out in his directions to Moses. What about that? We don't have the Spirit of God on us like that. Or David in the way that he penned those psalms. I can't write scripture. Or Elijah with his great boldness and his miracles and so on. Well, we have to remember, we're told in the New Covenant that in the New Testament, James 5, that Elijah was a man of like passions with us. There was nothing miraculous about Elijah and his person, but he did have the Spirit of God that enabled us him to do those things. But here the point is this. Yes, God enabled them to do some things we never will do in this life. But the point is that the Christian, on a regular and daily basis, has fuller communications of the free Spirit of God. David was a man of after God's own heart, but because of David's life, David could not have served as a pastor in a Christian church. He couldn't because of his sins of immorality. He couldn't. But we have, we could say, higher expectations of people because of this greater communications of the free Spirit of God than believers under the law did ordinarily know. I used this illustration some years ago when I preached on John 7, this part of John 7. And I said, um, it was like a shower head. In the Old Covenant, the water was coming out of the shower head, but the day of Pentecost was kind of like the day we had one time many years ago when a, a plumber came to our house and my wife said, how come my water is now running at a less uh, force out of, the, out, of my, out of my shower head than it used to? He said, did you get a new shower head? And, and my wife said, yes. He said, well, look, I want to show you something here. And he opened the thing up. He said, you see that little disc with a little hole in it? He said, that's what's keeping that water from coming That He said, now it's against the law for me to take that thing out. I'm not telling you what you should do. And so my wife knew what to do. She took that little disc out. And man, did her hair get cleansed of the shampoo a lot more quickly after that. Well, that's what it's like. It's the same water coming out of the, the shower head, if you will. But now there's nothing hindering it the way it was under the Old Covenant. So much more communications of the free Spirit of God in the New Covenant. 
Secondly, then, we come to this subject in paragraph 2, liberty of conscience. There's the basic doctrine of Christian liberty. Now, liberty of conscience. It says, God alone is Lord of the conscience, and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or not contained in it. So that to believe such doctrines or obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith and absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. So first of all, notice this. Liberty of conscience expressed positively, God alone is Lord of the conscience. Liberty of conscience doesn't mean you're not answerable to anyone. It means you're only answerable to God. That's complete freedom. You don't want any freedom beyond that. That's sinfulness, and that's bondage again to sin. James 4.12 says it this way, There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? God is the only Lord of anyone's conscience, period. In Romans 14, verse 4, Who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. In other words, God is his master. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. God alone is the ultimate, the final, the only constant authority for anyone. And he alone has the right to dictate what we ought to do and say and think throughout all of our lives at any moment in our lives. So there's liberty of conscience expressed positively. God alone is Lord of the conscience. And then liberty of conscience expressed negatively. And we'll start out with a statement. And that's in the confession. And he hath left it free. That is, he has left your conscience free from the doctrines and commandments of men. Just what I said, this now it's stating it negatively. No one else can usurp God's place, including you yourself. In other words, your own conscience is not the Lord of you. God is the Lord of your conscience. Some people, when they learn that phrase that, well, my conscience doesn't permit me to do that, they end up thinking that they can dictate what's right for wrong or wrong for them in any case. You may have a poorly instructed conscience. Your conscience needs to be bowing to the dictates of God and God alone, not of your own feelings. So listen to this in Acts 4.19. Peter and John said to the Jews who had arrested them, they were telling them not to preach in the name of Jesus. They answered, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God, you judge. In other words, they knew their Jewish captors would say you have to obey God. They might not think it really in their heart, but they would agree with that statement. And then similarly in Acts chapter 5 and verse 29, they're in the similar situation once again. And Peter and the apostles said that time, we ought to obey God rather than men. And so there's uh, liberty of conscience expressed positively there. And then we have the specification. So there's the statement of liberty of conscience. Now there's a specification. We are to obey God in things which are in anything contrary to his word. In other words, we don't obey men. 
We only obey God if it's anything contrary to God's word. Because hasn't God told us that there are many instances in which we should obey men? We should obey men if um, it's our parents, for instance, or if it's a husband and a wife and they disagree, but a decision has to be made and the husband has to be made, and the husband says, "Dear, we're going to do this," and the wife has to submit to that, or in the workplace or in the, um, the state or the, or the country, you have to obey the governing authorities. God says that. Well, let's go back to chapter uh, 15 of the book of Matthew for a moment. <clears throat> if there's anything contrary to God's word, then we don't obey those men. That's the point here. So Matthew 15, verses 4 through 6. Jesus says, For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from me has been dedicated to the temple, it is released and is released from honoring his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. So, Children should honor their father and mother. That should include caring for them in old age. The Jews devised a way that the Jews could get more offerings by having a loophole in the law, in a sense, just like we have tax loopholes. So you can keep from sending money to the government. Well, this was a way to keep children from giving money to their parents in the old age and and, uh, losing their wealth. And so they could say, well, we're going to give it to the temple. And so that money is set aside for that purpose. They were contradicting the Word of God. That was wrong. That's what they're saying here. Anything, any teaching of anyone that contradicts the teaching of the Word of God, you must not obey it. And then also, if it's any teaching of men that is not contained in the Word of God, in other words, the Word of God doesn't say you must do this, then you should not let any man say to you that you must do this. It's a matter of sin if you don't. And and that's what we had also in chapter 15 of Matthew, because the Jews were commanding that people have a special ceremonial washing every time before they eat. Was that taught in the Word of God? No. So is it right to bind men's consciences with that? No. And so that's the point. And so Jesus says in verse 9, And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They said that the tradition of the elders was equal in authority to the Word of God, just like the Roman Catholic Church teaches that its tradition is equal to the authority of the Word of God. And it's not. And that's making men the Lord of your conscience. And then there's an explanation for that after that. It says, and the explanation is this. It comes in two two sections. First, believing or submitting to the commandments of men is sin. Notice the statement. So that to believe such doctrines or obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience. To believe such doctrines or obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience. Let's look at Galatians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Galatians 2, verses 4 and 5. 
Paul says, but this occurred because of false brethren, this trouble that came upon the Gentile churches. It occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they may bring us into bondage to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. If people are allowed to say, Besides everything that's in the Bible that we have to obey, besides everything that Christ has commanded us, you also need to do this, 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 and this, then we are giving up the truth of the gospel. We're giving up the freedom, our liberty, which we have in Christ, as Paul says here. So it's sinful for you to put the teaching of any man or teaching of anything that's outside of the Word of God on anyone's conscience. And it's, it's, it's sinful for you to believe those things. And you're violating Christian liberty. And then the next thing is, teaching or commanding such things is also sin. So if you follow the commandments of men, you're sinning against Christian liberty. If you make commandments for people to observe alongside the commandments of God that are not taught in the Word of God, you're sinning. And kids, that does not mean that when your parent says, clean your room, he's doing this. That is not what that means. That falls under the heading of honor your father and your mother. All right, So they're not saying that if anybody in this world doesn't clean your room, they're sinning and they're going to hell. That is not what your parents are saying. They're just saying this. Clean your room. So clean it, all right? All right, but then the teaching of such commandment is sin. It says, and the requiring of an implicit faith and absolute and blind obedience is is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. And I won't be able to get to paragraph 3, so let me just finish this point. What they're going after here is the Roman Catholic doctrine of implicit faith. It's something Rome taught. They're condemning it here. Rome basically said this. You don't need to know all that you believe or be convinced that it's true. You have the church And the church can believe for you. You just believe in the church and you submit to everything we say and you're good. In other words, you don't have to study the Bible and figure out whether or not the Bible actually teaches what the church says. That's what they're saying. You believe that the church, the Roman Catholic Church, is infallible and then you are credited with believing every doctrine that the church teaches. You're good to go. You're going to go to heaven. Now, in the, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, <clears throat> they don't come right out and state that. There are no statements in the, the current Catechism of the Catholic Church about implicit faith. But there are many evidences of it. For instance, there's this statement. We believe all that which is contained in the Word of God, written or handed down, and which the church proposes for belief as divinely revealed. In other words, if you're a member of the Catholic Church, that's your confession. You don't have to know all that that the Catholic Church teaches. You're just saying, we believe it. And that's what they're saying is the way you should do it. 
You don't need to search it out. You don't need to open your Bible. You don't need to study it out like the Bereans who were more fair-minded than the Thessalonians. Why? Because they received the word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. And that's consistent. The Roman Catholic Church's teaching is consistent with their saying the Mass in Latin for centuries and discouraging the translation of the Bible into vernacular languages, languages that people actually spoke and understood. No, our attitude should be this. To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. Isaiah 8.20. And it's as Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, her faith was not based on the Scriptures. It was based on what the Samaritan teachers told her. And so Jesus said to her, You worship, you Samaritans, what you do not know. We, that is the Jews, know what we worship, for salvation is from the Jews. It's taught in the Scriptures, and that's consistent with liberty of conscience. God alone is the Lord of your conscience. Well, I need to close, so I have to save that last paragraph for next time. It's the perversion of Christian liberty. So let's close with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the teaching of your word on this important subject of Christian liberty. Help us to understand all that Christ has purchased for us and to embrace it. Help us to learn more about the great liberty we have in Christ. Help us to never make men the lords of our consciences. And we ask, Father, that we might know as Christians more regularly in our experience copious measures of the free Spirit of God active in our day-to-day lives. And now we ask for your blessing upon us as we come in the next hour to worship you. May we do so in spirit and in truth. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.